the beginning of my sermons, I always offer a prayer. We call it a prayer for illumination, praying that the light of God will open our eyes and illuminate the word Jesus has for us today from Scripture. And today, as I was reading Psalm 71, I found this beautiful prayer for illumination. As for me, I will always have hope. I will praise you more and more. My mouth will tell of your righteous deeds, of your saving acts all day long. Though I know not how to relate them all, I will come and proclaim your mighty acts, sovereign Lord. I will proclaim your righteous deeds, yours alone. God, as we hear of your righteous deeds and mighty acts, may our hearts be tuned and turned toward you. Would you continue to renew us by your spirit so that we are people of trust, that we are people of trust in the face of adversity and worry. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. So today is the first Sunday in a four-Sunday teaching series that Pastor Lars and I are sharing. Help, I'm overwhelmed. Help, I'm worried. Help, I'm anxious. Help, I'm depressed. Help, I'm overwhelmed. Consider the lilies of the field. Consider... Oh, I didn't turn it on. I should probably worry a bit more about technology, so I do it right. There we go. Consider the buckthorn. Its scientific name is Rhamnus cathartica. I had to practice that. And I know some of you are gardeners, and you are probably very familiar with buckthorn. If you are not, I will tell you. Buckthorn was introduced to North America in the 1880s as an ornamental shrub. Farmers would plant it as a windbreak to protect crops. It grows densely and quickly. And because of that, it seemed good at first. That's how it is for a lot of things. They seem good at first. But this plant grows so densely, it crowds out other plants. It alters nitrogen level in the soil, which makes it more challenging for other plants to survive. It produces a ton of those tiny little blackberries you see, and it looks delicious to birds and rodents, and so they eat them, but then it makes them sick, and the seeds get spread all around. They're not really that nutritious. It hosts funguses and insects that damage the same crops they were planted to protect. It also releases a toxin called emodin that is toxic to developing amphibian embryos. In other words, this stuff kills frogs. I want you to know, as a gardener, I hate buckthorn with the utmost hatred. I count it my enemy. I go outside armed with a hatchet and clippers, and I cut that stuff down. I pull it up by the root when I can, and you really only can when they're this big, right? Because if I, didn't, if I didn't go out there, buckthorn would overwhelm my yard. It would overwhelm my garden, my wildflowers, my native plants. And if you have ever tried to eradicate buckthorn, 
Anybody? A few. Yes, thank you, Jim. Or any invasive plant, it can easily overwhelm you too. But I realize we're not all gardeners. We're not all overwhelmed by buckthorn. But I am willing to guess that today you're overwhelmed by other things. Let's consider a few exhibits. Consider the mustard at the store. <laughs> so look at this crazy wall. Now, you probably actually don't worry about mustard, but this wall is symbolic of some of the worries that you might have because in our current world, we have so much choice. We have so many choices, so many options. Psychologists call it choice overload. So if we just consider the mustard wall as an example, you look at the mustards, and there are so many choices you start to worry. You worry that maybe the mustard you choose could have been made in a facility that isn't up to par. Maybe the mustard has a hidden allergen. It says mustard, vinegar, water. But what other things did that machine crush? Maybe this mustard will make you sick. Maybe you worry that the mustard was made by someone who wasn't paid a decent wage, who can't afford health care, who has to go to the emergency room every time they have a cold. Maybe buying this mustard is supporting injustice for workers. Maybe you worry about the, the plastic mustard jar, that you can put it in the recycling bin, but it's really not going to be recycled. The recycling bin is just civic greenwashing, and it's going to sit in the landfill for, I don't know, a million years. And this is just mustard. So we worry with all the choices we have, whenever we have to make a choice. What programs should I be part of or my kids be a part of? What about college? What about looking for a job? What about options in retirement? What news station should I watch? What streaming service should I use? How do we spend our leisure time? Consider the mustard of the wall. C consider our crazy, busy lives. Our crazy, busy lives are examples of how we're overwhelmed today. You're busy. I know you're busy. You're busy with work. You take care of people, whether it's children or elders. You take care of your home, maybe your second home too. You, you try to keep up with the family, siblings, children, parents, grandparents, aunt and uncles, cousins. Try to keep up with the news. You try to stay in style. You try to catch a break and catch your breath. And you, you worry that if a child you love isn't in XYZ activities, they won't get into XYZ college, and that they'll fail, and that they'll boomerang back home and live with you. Or, maybe worse, they'll move away and never come back. We have a lot more students in our second service, but to the students here, you're busy too, I know. You're busy, and you worry about your classes. You worry if your friends really like you. You worry how you're doing in sports or in theater, if you'll get cast or put on the team. You worry about doing well in school, so you'll get into your top college choice, so you can get your dream job, so you can start this cycle all over again. Consider our crazy, busy lives. Consider our money. No matter how much we have, we worry about money. We worry about money if we have a lot, if we don't have much. We worry that the economy could tank, that we could lose our jobs, that we could lose our home, that we might not be able to maintain our standard of living. 
We worry about all the things that could happen. Cancer. The plane I'm flying in could have a loose bolt. It could. The coronavirus could make its way to Hinsdale. My house could catch fire. My spouse could lose interest. My friends could move away. I could be alone. I could never find a job that's fulfilling. My children or grandchildren could forget about me. The church could empty out. We could run out of money. XYZ politician could win in 2020 and then all hell would break loose. There could be no gluten-free snacks. I could continue. <laughs> and I'm guessing if I did not name one of your worries today, you could. You could easily say, this is what I worry about, and you could make a list and it could take more than a minute. A 16th century French writer, Michel de Montaigne said, my life has been full of terrible misfortunes, most of which never happened. But these worries and the thousands that I didn't mention are like buckthorn in our lives. They grow quickly. And at first it seems rather innocent, right? Worries are, are part of being an authentic self, part of being real, part of being honest with ourselves. But worry is like buckthorn. It's an invasive species in our lives and it grows and it starts to choke out life, the life that Jesus gives and invites each of us into in the moment, life in the presence of God. Like buckthorn, worry is toxic to our lives and the lives of others. You ever listen to someone share about all their worries? And then it feels like you have more to worry about? Has that happened? Maybe it just happened now. I'm sorry. It's not where we're going. Um, but when we focus on our worries, it is like injecting, in, ingesting poison. It leads to a host of other problems, and we neglect the life-giving thought practices that, spirit, the, that Scripture and the Holy Spirit gives us. Like buckthorn, worry hosts other illnesses and empowers them to spread within our own lives and to the lives of others. Please know, I hate worry with the utmost hatred. I count it my enemy. And yes, on Friday night, I woke up at 3.30 a.m. worrying. I'm not immune either. And to all of this, to all of this worry talk, Jesus says, no one, oh, there we go, like Buckner, no one can serve two masters. For a slave will either hate one and love the other or be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food, and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And can any of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your lifespan? And why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not clothed like one of these. But 
If God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not also clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not worry, saying, what will we eat or what will we drink or what will we wear? For it is the Gentiles who strive after for all these things. And indeed, your heavenly Father knows you need these things. But strive first for the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things will be given to you as well. So do not worry about tomorrow. For tomorrow will bring worries of its own. Today's trouble is enough for today. The passage for today is from a sermon. It's a sermon Jesus taught in Matthew's Gospel. It's a sermon we often call the Sermon on the Mount, chapters 5 through 7. And this is how that sermon begins. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. Then he began to speak and taught them. It's really important to know that Jesus' sermon is not for everyone in this story because Jesus isn't preaching to the crowds. He sees the crowds, and then he goes up in the mountain and teaches his disciples. Biblical scholars describe the sermon as an ethic, a teaching for the Jesus community, for the followers of Jesus. Consider those of us who are here today, the believing church, those who have made a commitment to follow Jesus' way, turning from our own way to follow Jesus. This is a teaching for us. Now, I realize our church has opened doors, and people who are seeking Jesus come in and haven't yet decided to follow Jesus. This is for you to listen in on. But the teaching is specifically for Jesus' followers, disciples of Jesus. Apprentices of Jesus who have said yes to follow him. And when Jesus goes up on the mountain, he is symbolically reenacting Moses on the sermon, Moses on Mount Sinai from the book of Exodus, when he receives the law and then passes it on to God's people. This story about Moses on the mountain receiving the law, this is when all the disciples gathered around Jesus know. It's a symbolic act. A teacher on the mountain giving the law equals Moses. And Jesus is giving a new law for God's people. And he doesn't just give a replacement law, get rid of the old law, have a new law. No, he raises the bar on the law. Jesus says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish, but to fulfill. And he raises the bar. Moses never said, don't worry. Jesus is instituting a new community, one that John Stott called the Christian counterculture community. And his teach, in this teaching, Matthew 5 through 7, Jesus is showing what his community will look like. One of the indicators of this community is that they don't worry. They're crazy people. They don't worry. They especially don't worry about money or about day-to-day existence. But note that Jesus doesn't just start with don't worry, right? His teaching that becomes before this is about money. And this teaching and about money and worry we often cut apart, but they're not cut apart. They're intricately linked because there's a therefore. You see that? You cannot serve God and wealth. Therefore, I tell you, 
do not worry about your life. He starts by talking who we're a slave to. Are you, sla- are you a slave to wealth? Then you can't be a slave to God, Jesus says. This is stark teaching, and we're really uncomfortable talking about slavery. In our context, it has racial connotations. None of us want to be a slave. In fact, we talk in conversations about justice, about current human trafficking and slavery. But the truth is, is that all of us are a slave to someone or something. No one can serve two masters, Jesus says. Not everyone should not serve any master. A slave can't be owned by two masters simultaneously. Wealth is one master. God is another master. Therefore, if you serve master God, the one who made the lilies of the field, the birds of the sky, don't worry. I love that Jesus doesn't say, try not to worry. We we say that, right? Oh, I'll try not to worry about it, right? We say that. He says, don't worry, full stop. Don't worry. I am thankful he doesn't say, don't worry, be happy, because that might be asking a little much sometimes. Do not worry. Because when you worry, you're serving two masters. Jesus says that no one can serve two masters. You're serving the master of control, the task mistress that says, imagine all the contingencies and now meditate on them. Keep these worries that you ponder in your heart. Recite the worries to your children and your friends and talk about them when you are at home and when you are at Bible study. Mill them over in your mind when you lie down and when you rise. Get a tattoo of your worries on your hand. Use them as a screensaver. Run over them in your mind like a car on a dirt road making a clear cut and now stay in that rut. This is what the task mistress of worry says. The task mistress of worry and the task mistress of control are the same. They say, worry, worry about what you'll eat. Is it safe? Is it organic? Does it have poison? Worry about what you'll wear. Worry about money. Worry about security. Worry about the future. That's a master. That's master worry. When you worry, you're serving a master, and that master is not Jesus. But Jesus looks out at his disciples, this motley crew of rugged fishermen, a formerly dishonest tax collector, a zealot, and Jesus says, don't worry. This teaching is at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. He is training his disciples to follow him. And if you're following an itinerant teacher, it's important not to worry. First step. Stop worrying about dinner. Because we have to remember these guys following Jesus were so much more poor than we are. When they worried about food, they worried, will I get food? Will I get something to eat when I'm hungry? And then clothing in the first century, it was hand-woven and handmade. Most people only had two outfits. They had, an, they had two undergarments, two robes, and then two cloaks to go over it, or often one cloak. And then poor people just had one outfit, and on the Sabbath day, they would inside out their robe to put the good side out. There weren't sweatshops making more clothing than the world needs in Sri Lanka then. But we worry about clothes. Have you ever said, I have nothing to wear? I've said it. We should never say that sentence. Even when we have clothes, we worry about clothes. 
We have closets full of clothes and cupboards full of food and grocery stores full of food and we throw food in the trash 15 minutes after the suggested best by date is passed and we are so food secure. I realize it's not equally spread, but it, we are so food secure in the United States that dieting is a $72 billion industry. But still we worry about food and clothes and all those worries I so eloquently dumped on you at the beginning of this talk. Worries about security and worries that can be boiled down to worries of existence. But when we worry, we are not really worrying about what we're worrying about. We worry because we want to be in control. Worry reinforces the idea that everything is up to us. This is a quote in a really good book called Anxious, Choosing Faith in a World of Worry that I'd recommend. Worry puts us in the center, us and those we love. And worry, my friends, is idolatry. It's following another master. It's worshiping something else rather than God. Worry is saying to God, yes, I trust you, but what about this? What about that? Are you really God? Don't I have better ways of understanding all the problems in the world than you do God? That's what worry says to God. And when we worry, like any idolatry, it takes center stage in our mind and hearts, and it crowds out other thoughts, it spreads to others, it kills hope. Worry is the buckthorn of our minds. And I want to tell you good news. There is a better way. I want to offer you some steps, a way out of worry when you feel overwhelmed. These are some tools I'm going to share for you, tools we find in scripture, tools we find in the history of the church, part of the lives of Christians who have gone before us. So first, don't worry. When you worry, it's idolatry. Seek God's kingdom. And this is how we can do it. Simple disciplines. Simple and so complex. Pray. Talk to God. Begin when you're worried with prayers, not about your worry, but prayers of gratitude. So if you're worried about your health, which makes sense, if you're worried about your health or pain you have, begin not with praying for that. Begin with thanking God for the parts of you that are working well. God, thank you for my arm, my left arm that doesn't hurt today, that I can move it without pain right? This can really feel fake and forced, but stubborn weeds require some hard work. Tell God your worry in your prayer. Say, God, I am worried about X, Y, Z. Read scripture. If you're driving and you're worrying, which driving is a good time to worry, I think, um, but if you're driving and you're worrying, have an audio Bible so you can listen to scripture on your phone. And if you don't know how to do that, talk to someone younger and they can help you out. Right? There are great audio Bible versions. You can have an audio Bible ready to listen to the word of God. I recommend starting in the Psalms. So the psalmist is anxious about a lot of things, and, but always takes them to God, so it's a great model for prayer. Read the Psalms as prayers or go straight to the life and person of Jesus and listen to the Gospels. Read the Gospels. A third tool is to share your worries with a mature Christian. Now, I want to be really clear. Don't just share your worries with anyone. Remember how worry poisons and how it spreads. You don't want to spread it around. Share it with a mature Christian like a pastor or someone that you witness having a deep walk with Jesus. 
If you share your worry and they encourage it, like, oh, that makes sense that you're worried about it. I, I would worry about that too, and now I'm going to worry with you. Probably not a great choice. Um, you're looking for someone who listens, but who also challenges you by helping you see the bigger picture. I did mention I worry sometimes. There is a mature Christian woman in my life, and I will frequently call her and say, I'm worried or concerned about this. It's taking up all the space in my mind, and she'll listen, and she will affirm me as a person, but she will not affirm my behavior. And then usually after our conversation, I am not worried about it anymore, and neither is she. She offers wisdom. Because worry, fundamentally, is really about how we trust God. Our trust in worry is trust that needs to be active. We often think of trusting as something we assent to in our mind, mental assent and belief, but it is not. Trust is active. And I'm going to show this to you, and Pastor Courtney is going to help me out. So, have, did you ever go to camp, or were you ever in drama where you did trust falls? Okay? The key to a trust fall is what? Trust. Okay. Finally, this sermon series is called Overwhelmed, and we're looking at some pretty big and negative ways that we are overwhelmed, but you know what? I want you to be overwhelmed. I do. I want you to be overwhelmed, but I want you to be overwhelmed by Jesus. One of those disciples listening to Jesus' sermon in Matthew's gospel was named John. About 60 years later, the same John who had helped lead churches, who had been entrusted with Mary, Jesus' mother, when Jesus was on the cross, John was on the island of Patmos. He was, he was imprisoned. This is an island where the prisoners would serve in the mines. It was hard physical labor. He was away from his community and his church. He was probably very isolated spiritually. And the island location made it impossible to imagine escape. But one day, John is overwhelmed. And he writes, On the Lord's day, I was in the Spirit. And I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, which said, Write on a scroll what you see. I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet with a golden sash around his waist. The hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze, glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. John was overwhelmed by Christ. Sometimes we call this a vision. It's not a vision. 
Jesus was there. Jesus was there, present with John, as he was imprisoned on this island. He was old, too. He had seen Jesus, but at this moment, I think he was longing for hope, and Jesus shows up, and John is overwhelmed. And this is how I know it's not a vision. Then we read that Jesus places his right hand on John. He touches John, and he says, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, and now look, I am alive forever and ever. In the midst of a nightmare existence in which all the worries of life pile up on one another, Jesus shows up. He comforts John. Yes, the, the way he sees Jesus, the glorified Jesus, is terrifying. But it's not so terrifying that he stays there. Jesus speaks to him. He says, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid, John. Jesus was before all these worries began. He is after all these worries end. He has been to hell and back, and now he's alive forever. John, don't worry. And John is overwhelmed. When we are overwhelmed by the Jesus we worship, we will never be overwhelmed by our little worries. They cannot fit into our minds at the same time. You want to see your worries disappear? Look into the light of Christ. His light and love will burn those worries away. Meditate on the person of Christ. Read this chapter in Revelation 1, because the presence and power of King Jesus overwhelms the smallness of our own concerns. Our concerns are real, but they're not part of the kingdom of God the kingdom Jesus preached about. Seek the righteousness of Christ, the righteousness he teaches through obedience and the righteousness that's given to us because of Christ's righteousness. Seek first Jesus' kingdom, this one John saw a glimpse of, the one that caused him to fall over. Seek first Jesus' kingdom, be overwhelmed by Jesus' presence, and all those things will be given to you as well. Amen.